Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, to be challenged and to grow. After hundreds of conversations, we've discovered that every guest has managed to unlock their potential within. This podcast seeks to find out how they did it. Here's what's coming up. My story essentially is winning a world title at the fourth attempt, which I didn't think that was going to be my story when I set out at seven years of age, dreaming of becoming a world champion. But now I can own it, be proud of it, that it took unwavering self-belief and a lot of resilience. Big right hand comes swimming over in the third round. I hear the crack. I know this sound because I broke my jaw 10 years prior as an amateur boxing in Poland. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is my physio comes over and he just puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Eddie's collapsed in the changing room. So um, I know instantly what that means. Like he's in a bad way. And yeah, yeah my, my world kind of changed instantly there and then. So it's a very warm welcome to George Groves on the High Performance Podcast. George is a former professional boxer, competed for 10 years. He held a WBA super middleweight title. He had a brilliant career. In March 2018, he was ranked as the world's best active super middleweight boxer by Ring Magazine. And he spoke to us about struggles in his career. He spoke to us about the great moments, the hard moments, the big lessons that he learned and why he at times had to do things differently to other people. I'd love to know what you think of this episode. Don't forget, you can reach out to us on Instagram, on Twitter. You can also watch these conversations on YouTube as well as listen to them right here, wherever you get your podcasts from. So listen, sit back, enjoy. Time to get you closer to your own version of high performance as we speak to former boxer, George Groves. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Well, George, welcome to High Performance. No, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. Um, yeah, I'm a fan of the show, so thanks for having me on. Let's start then, where you know we always do. What is your version of high performance? Yeah, I knew that question was coming, so I was trying to think of a, the best answer. Performance, I like the word performance because for me, boxing was a was a performance, you know, in, in that regard. So slightly different, different take on just, you know, performing a task, but 
putting on a performance and then a high performance would be in the fight, in the moment, at the highest level, thinking and feeling and slipping and sliding and reacting uh, to the punches that are coming at you and then obviously throwing your punches back and then you, you dissect it back to how have you got to that point, what have you been doing in the build-up, what's your training been like, always trying to operate with a high performance. So I think maybe that's the best way. Maybe that's one way to say it for me. And then when you finish boxing like I have now, to go back and reevaluate and you try and what what was success? And I've heard many of your other guests talk about it. Like, is it happiness? Is it is it being happy? Um, is it being present in the moment? And yeah, there's been times in my career where I felt like I was I was happy, I wasn't happy, I was present and I wasn't present. So now just yeah, I suppose a little bit more, maybe a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more experience. And uh, and definitely, uh, well, definitely happiness, which is which is good. Are you so, happy? I think so. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think there's like a yin yang in this world. So you can't be happy without being sad. You know, you can't really enjoy something if you haven't had to work hard for it. I appreciate all the suffering that I've had. Obviously, there's the physical grueling, you know, training that everyone, every fighter will talk about and has done. And then obviously, I've had huge you know disappointments um failures it's felt like at times my story essentially is winning a world title at the fourth attempt which wasn't something that i thought was gonna i didn't think that was gonna be my story when i set out at seven years of age dreaming of becoming a world champion but now i can i can definitely own it be proud of it that it took unwavering self-belief and a lot of resilience to finally get across that line in the end and, and get my, my hand raised and, and become a world champion, which was, as I say, was, was, was always the dream. So if you can go to that moment and then work backwards from it, the moment you did get your hand raised as world champion, how did that feel, that achievement of a lifetime's ambition? Yeah, uh, a lifetime's, yeah, ambition, dream uh, fulfilled. It was, it was relief really, to be honest. I, I, I think at that point it, it was, it was relief. Um, I'd love for it to have, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy. I'm obviously happy with what it was and it, it it's authentic because that's, that's what it was. But yeah, the idea of like jumping up and down, celebrating. I watched the ladies win, win, win the trophy in the football this summer. And I was like, they don't stop running up and down. They're popping champagne corks. You know, it, it, I was like, when I won, when I won my belt, all I wanted to do was just go and curl up in the corner and, uh, and rest because it just, it felt like the weight of the world had been lifted from my shoulders. I could finally breathe. It was, you know, it really was like a, a last chance saloon situation. It felt like, you know, I'd always had the, the drive and, you know, dedication, been fully committed to, you know, to boxing, the task at hand. And at this point it was to become a world champion. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what would have happened if, if, it, if it had gone wrong for me that night, if it had gone on pear shape. So I feel like, relief was probably the overwhelming feeling and then is that not disappointing now when you look back on that as that seven-year-old lad that set out on that journey does it not feel a bit disappointing that you got to the top of that mountain and that was the overriding emotion i don't think so I, as i say i think you know uh don't get me wrong like there's still an awful lot of happiness you know awful lot of happiness i smiled ear to ear with a broken jaw you know for 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 weeks and if well i'm still smiling now you know it still will be the best moment in boxing for me mm. so i had to you know i had to suffer for it I, had to, I, I felt like i had to suffer for it and even in in the actual physical fight as i say chudinov uh former world champion russians come over People have heard of him, but I'm still the favourite. You know, I've got home advantage. It's sort of last chance saloon. Big right hand comes swimming over in the third round. I hear it land. I hear the, the crack. I know this sound because I, I broke my jaw 10 years prior as an amateur boxing in Poland. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a bit funky. I can't shut my mouth because, you know, my teeth funky. are in the way. Um, my mouth starts filling up with blood. It's like, well... Not so much case or ass or all, but it was like, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. Just get out there and do your job, man. It's, you, Surely every now. punch after that was searingly painful, no? Yeah, but you, I mean, you do, you do necessarily get a bit, a bit numb to it, but you don't, you don't want to be giving away any, any free shots because, yeah, you don't know what the, 
I'm not sure what the effects would be. Like, is your punch resistance the same mm. if your jaw's Did broken? Or is it just... Probably not. Probably not. I mean, it was broken on one side, so it wasn't like hanging and flapping. I mean, that would have been real, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a real nightmare. But I sat down in the corner and obviously my, my trainer at the time was Shane McGuigan and he reached in to take the gum shield out and I just sort of shake my head as if say, just leave it in. So he was unaware and obviously I, I didn't want to stress him out <laughs> at that point. I didn't want to go, no, nah, leave it. My, I think he broke my jaw. So I thought, I'll, I'll tell him after. That was a conscious decision. You went back to that corner and thought, I'm not going to stress my corner out. I'm just going to bite yeah, down and get yeah, on with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's it's kind of, that's that definitely me at that point. And maybe that will always be me now. But um, I always like to shoulder the responsibility of most things and definitely my career. So um, large spells of my career, I was literally self-managed and had to, you know, think on my feet in the moment, live in the moment. And yeah, at that point, I just decided there's absolutely zero benefit from me giving him these instructions, Shane, because then will Shane act differently? So I've had a broken jaw before. I don't know if he's ever had a fighter in the corner with a broken jaw. So I was like, well, here we go. You know, just keep going. Next round, they cut. I get a cut over the eye, um, blood streaming into the eye. You know, you, you're told as an early pro, like never wipe away the blood. You're giving the referee an excuse that your your vision is obscured and there's a reason to stop the fight. But at this point, it's like it is like now whenever you, know, you I've got a broken jaw, I can't see it. it. It's it's in my interest to actually just dab at the eye a little bit. And yeah, I mean, Chuchunov is as tough as they come. The only comfort for me at this point is I was landing on him, like I was landing the shots, so I could hit him. I just couldn't really put a dent in him at this point. But I'm thinking, as I say, it's now or never. Like you've you've worked your entire life to get to this point. They'll have to carry me out. You know, I I will I will I will succeed. I will get there. And then yeah, the sixth round, a couple of rounds later, um, right hand sharp right hand comes in, momentarily stunned Chudnov, and it's like capitalize on this now. So yeah, just start raining in punches on him. I think it's 30, 30, 35 unanswered punches later. Referee finally calls halt to the bout. Oh, that's it, man. I'm there. 20, it feels, well, yeah, at that point, over 20 years in the making, dreaming since watching Rocky on TV at seven years of age, thinking about becoming a world champion. Done. Dusted. See, it's fascinating to get an insight into such, like, a cerebral boxer to be able to talk to us around that self-talk that's going on in that moment. But you just used the phrase there that sort of made me just sit up and pay attention when you said, they're going to have to carry me out of here. It's all or nothing now that you're going in. Because you're a fighter that actually had come up against somebody that had to be carried out, that had that same mentality of it's all or nothing. Mm. And now given how thoughtful you are at this moment of I'm not going to tell him a corner that I broke my jaw of this guy's only been down once before and you're remembering all of that. Where did that memory come into? It was there. It was in the moment. I mean, the fight the fight you're referring to is when I boxed um, Eddie Goodnicht from Germany and it was the fight before this fight. But I was already, I beat Martin Murray in um, a chief support for an Anthony Joshua fight. The orders of 50-50. And that made me um, a mandatory challenger for the WBA world title. So my next fight technically could be a world title. Took a little while for the WBA to sort of uh, get that fight over the line. So we had a warm-up bout, a keep busy fight. And Eddie comes over and we we, we have the fight. And yeah, uh, it goes a full 12 rounds. So it was like, yeah, I landed, I landed a lot, a lot of shots on him. And the referee probably could have pulled it a bit earlier. Still, he was never quite in enough trouble for the referee to definitely step in. The corner could have easily pulled him out at many stages of the fight because he was never in the fight, never going to win the fight. No one would have been complaining if the fight got pulled early. He didn't. And then um, I get the win. Great. Let's go back to the change room. Let's talk about when, when we're going to get a, a world title shot, preparing for the post-fight press conference. And my physio, who's... Um, Kevin Nilo sort of takes care of all, all my medical sort of stuff. He comes over and he just puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Eddie's collapsed in the changing room. So um, I know instantly what that means. Like he's uh, he's in a bad way. When fighters collapse after a fight, they've usually had some sort of bleed on the brain, swelling on the brain, something usually pretty serious, which is what had happened to Eddie. Um, they rushed him off the hospital. And yeah, my... Um, yeah, my, my world kind of changed instantly there and then. 
because um, I'd recently become a, I'd become a, a father, like I'd become a dad four or five months before then. And I knew Ed, Eddie had three kids and um, it was like, oh, it's not why I got into boxing. It's not, I didn't get into boxing to, to hurt people. And I'm sure as a kid, you're very much like, wow, well, I'll go out on my shield as such. But when you grow up in the real world and you've got family, you've got responsibilities, boxing ain't, ain't really worth that anymore. So, um, yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that did, that did, that did, that plagued me. That I knew then, like, ugh, my time in boxing is numbered, you know. Which reminds me of that brilliant book, Dog Rounds by Elliot Wurzel, I think it is, that spoke about fighters that have been in a ring with somebody that's ended up being either impaired or killed. So he interviews people like Barry McGuigan that, uh, unfortunately one of his opponents died and, you know, Emil Griffiths, the famous middleweight boxer that that was in a similar situation. And I think what they always say is the person that's responsible, if you like, that administers the uh, the punishment it takes more from them as well than what it might appear to as much as the victim. It's, it robs something of the perpetrator. What what would you say it did take from you, that incident? It takes that killer instinct. It takes that, that, that spite, that venom, that ruthlessness, really. And don't get me wrong, in, in flash moments you'll have it. But b before then, me at 22, I had it all the time, all the time. But then in becoming a dad... Knocked me for six. You know, it softened me. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, soon after that, Eddie. And then soon after that, winning a world title. So achieving the dream. But uh, yeah, I mean, like anything, I think if you if you hurt someone, then yeah, more, more so than anything, it, it, it robbed me of a, a bit of killer instinct, which is hard. It was just really hard for me to, to say and come to terms with because it's almost what I used to pride myself on. Well, boxing's often a sport boxing. of delusion, isn't it? You say, oh, I'm in the best shape I've ever been, or I'm hitting harder than anyone, or I'm tough. Were you admitting this, that I've lost that killer instinct, or were you denying it to yourself as well as to others when you sign up for these final three fights? I think I was processing it, to be honest. I mean, I think I was processing it. I, it it wasn't as, as sort of black and white as, you know, a switch had been switched off, but um, because there could be loads of reasons why you feel different and obviously you desire to be a champion, desire to be the best, desire to, to beat someone else um, is there. So if there's, if there's something that's, that's off, slightly off key, it was really hard to put, put my finger on what it was. And yeah, maybe even, even so it was something that I didn't really want to own up to. I think, I think even now I'll probably leave, leave here tonight and regret saying it. <laughs> well, well, thank you for sharing it. Uh, only joking. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because you, as hard as it is for your boxing, the killer instinct, you also have to get in a ring and be punched by somebody else. So where, where did it leave you regarding self-doubt and, and your future? And how hard, because we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast that talk to us about the fact that the biggest issue in their lives is self-doubt, that voice telling them they're not, they're not able to do it anymore, they shouldn't be doing it, they should move on and do other things. How did you fight that voice? The sort of, I guess, guidance that our listeners could benefit from. I I never like I always had unwavering like self confidence yeah. self self belief uh, always and it 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 never left me. So um, where does that come from then? And how can we build that into our own lives if it's something that we struggle with? Yeah, I think to believe that you, that you're going to be the very best and you obviously got to prepare for that as best you can. And then it, it when I go back through what the experiences that I did, how I used used to think and approach stuff, it's no different from what. You know, experts will tell you is I get myself in boxing wise. I get myself in in the best possible shape I could be in, believing that I'm working harder than anyone else. Why was that important? That was what I thought was the right thing to do for success. So I started. I mean, I, I started kickboxing when I was seven, and uh, I started boxing when I was ten. There was no ceiling put on my amb ambition. I, I I thought I was going to be the greatest of all time. I was like already mapping as a kid, mapping out my future. Be like, right, I'm going to win the ABAs. Uh, at least once. Mike Tyson was world champion at 20. I think I could probably get there. You know, so, and he's like, <laughs> I mean, uh, 
you grow up obviously and then your expectations get adjusted a little bit um and you forgive yourself for not becoming a world champion at 20 and stuff like that but um it was always always there i mean al always there so tell us about that because some people might look at that it through cynical eyes and go delusional but actually there's something real beneficial in having that dream and that aspiration so what would you would you tell us about the benefits of in, of encouraging others to dream and have those kind of high aspirations well you can't really get there without without the you know people talk about oh visualization i'm like oh, what does that mean but actually when i think about it that was all i did forever as a kid you'd be visualizing you go for a run you're visualizing and for me, because where I would stumble across it, because I would never really visualize the uh, the bow or anything like that. Uh, I'd visualize the ring walk, the fun bit. I'd visualize the win, lifting the belt. So without that, it's going to be very difficult to sort of get wherever you really want to be. I want to ask you another question then, because I grew up in boxing. And I know there's that old saying, isn't there? When you walk forward, everyone else walks backwards. And that's the most terrifying moment. At some stage, you've got to walk forward into that ring with just you and the other guy there. And that, to me, is often a competition of who can like, who can manage their own nervous system enough to stay calm and implement the plan that you've done in training. What did you learn about being able to manage your emotions to be able to go out there and execute the dreams that you've been nurturing? I used to love it. Like, I, I loved it. So where did the nerves show up then? There's never really, never really. I mean, never on fight night. I was always willing to put the work in wherever the work was required. So I always felt overqualified, overprepared that it's up to me to just go and perform. I lost a few. Uh, I lost as an amateur. Never boxed anyone who's better than me, never boxed anyone who, who could beat me uh, on my day. Uh, so it was either I didn't show up or there was something else involved. But I don't, I don't, I don't carry that approach to everything in life, guys. It's interesting that, that, isn't it? Because that's where the learning comes, right? You now know in your early 30s, failure is the growth. That's where I learn. It's interesting that at the time you, you were like, well, something else must have happened. That's why I lost that fight. I, I think that's a really interesting and intriguing <clears throat> approach at that time and whether actually it would have been better for you to have been able to go, right, I messed up here. This is how I can improve. Yeah, so, I mean, the th the third time I lose a world title shot is I'm out in Vegas. Um, I've had the two big fights with Frotch. I've done Wembley Stadium. So first fight, I lose controversially. Um, I still won't let it go. So <laughs> controversially, um, they demand a rematch, you know, I'm leaving no stone unturned. I'm not taking anything for granted. I'm in there with Carl Froch, season fight, former world champion, uh, no, current world champion, four times world champion. I've got to go out there and do the job. Um, switch off for a split second, boom, that's boxing. You pay the ultimate price, new low, knocked out in front of 80,000 people. And that was, that was the first time where I'm thinking, right, what is my life? instead of boxing rather than what's my life after boxing. But this is so hard though, because when you're an elite performer, like you were believing you're good enough is the most important thing, right? It's the belief that gets you there in the end. So as soon as you don't have that belief that, you know, you're George Groves, of course you're going to be world champion. Even if you're not, you can't lose that. Can you? No, it's, it's desire really. It's, it's desire. Again, not, not self-belief. I lost to Badu Jack and I watched the fight back and I'm like, I made a mistake there. Like I should have put it on a bit, put a bit more into it. Um, I should have made some changes beforehand, you know, but, but whatever you're at that point, you're making excuses. So you just question your desire. Um, for me, desire was, can I leave the sport without becoming a world champion? Absolutely not. So you go again, but identifying that for me, there were things that weren't right at that point. So I need to make some changes. What were they? Um, so I changed trainer, um, I was working with a guy called uh, Paddy Fitzpatrick, who was um, an amateur coach from Swindon. And me and Paddy go on a on a on a run together. Uh, we had the first frotch fight where I come really close. Second frotch fight where I don't. Um, the fight's even, uh, but I get knocked out. And then three more fights later, I fight Badu Jack, and yeah, I drop a split decision. I was like, well. Paddy's not quite right for me. Um, See, can I jump in there? Because I, I want to give 
a trainer's perspective on this because because I, I saw lots of fighters sort of abandon the coach after a loss, and it used to frustrate me because to me, and I'm not and I'm interested in your answer to this rather than trying to presuppose it. It was always an excuse. You know what I mean? I always saw fighters and it would often be, rather than do that self-reflection of what did I not do? It was, oh, you let me down. You gave me the wrong tactics. You didn't train me properly. And it used to frustrate me because I'd see the job of your entourage is to tell you you're great. And if you haven't been great, it's easier to blame somebody else than it is to hold the mirror up and say, maybe you need to look at yourself, George. Mm. So I'm, I'm just interested in how you would how you'd respond to that. So I didn't, I didn't have a, a huge entourage at the time. So, um, Paddy, I had a new team. I brought Paddy in, uh, I brought Barry O'Connell in, who's an ex Royal Marine. Uh, and I was already working with Dan Lawrence, who's a SNC coach. And that was pretty much the team really. So I, I'd gone from being under the, the haymaker umbrella, pretty much kept away from the business side of stuff by Adam. Frustratedly, I wanted to be more involved. I wanted to be more aware Adam had left, I'm now self-managed and I'm managed in a world title pay-per-view fight. So everything comes at me. From there, I go into Wembley Stadium, post-war attendance record for boxing in the UK. It's mega. I'm Now I'm trying to juggle sponsorship deals, this this deal, that deal, the fight, liaise, sort out sanctioning bodies, working with just every problem you could ever imagine. It, it, it landed on my lap. But you don't want to bl don't want to blame the coach, but you have to you have to be aware when stuff isn't going right. And sometimes I've got seven key traits of a champion, and the last one, number seven, is be willing to start over. Is be willing to go back to the drawing board and and start again. And that can be the hardest one of all mm. because you feel like you're giving up on the dream or you're you're giving up on the work that you've already put in. But for me right there and then, I needed a change and the ruthlessness is still there. It's like, sure, you want loyalty in boxing, but at the same time, it can't be at the expense of the end goal. So why not surround yourself with more people? who can do all the things that you don't actually need to be doing, like fighting fires, dealing with ticket sales, solving problems here, there and everywhere. So you can just focus on fighting because, you know, you've lost three world title fights on the bounce. One of the things that could have been changed instead of the personnel around you was just get more people. Yeah. So, so up until this point, I had, I didn't really have any trust in anyone. So I didn't, I didn't trust Where'd anyone. Where'd that come to, from? Uh, from? From boxing in general. <laughs> Boxing, general. I mean, you. boxing, boxing. You know, they're um, it's 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 hard to it's hard to trust a, a lot of people in boxing, um, who have your best interests at heart. And fortunately for me, by the end of my career, I did I did accumulate a lot of people there who put me first, yeah. um, which is it's it's the ultimate dream for for a fighter. And I think anyone else who wants to work in boxing and isn't a fighter should have that mentality. But I did I did after that I I um put myself on the market. I, I reached out to Shane McGuigan, who was doing great things. He had Carl Frampton in the gym, who was a world champion at the time. I remember walking in the gym, talking to Shane and just being like, right, here we go. Is it talking about people who might be there to help me? Barry McGuigan's in the corner. Barry McGuigan, every story I had to tell about. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. 
Can I just talk about my Labrador Belle for a second? Oh, she's five years old. We love her so much. She is pretty much the most important person in the family, certainly more important than me. And that's why today's episode is sponsored by ASPCA Pets Health Insurance, because I know that your pet is part of your family and you want the best for them, right? But at the same time, vet bills can really add up. And that's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Programme has been around for over 18 years. They allow you to customise your plan, helping ensure your pet's plan is as unique as they are. And it's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash performance. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash performance. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Adversity, he's already faced it. You know, he's already had it. He's already, he's been involved in, in mega fights and in, in big fights. He's come, come, come away with big losses. He's had a heartache and sadness in throughout his boxing career. So he was there and he's, he's only there to help. So then being back in the gym, a bit more camaraderie, and we, we didn't rush back. You know, it wasn't like, right, next fight's got to be for a world title or a world title eliminator. I had a fight January at the Copper Box. Not a huge arena. No one wants to fight in January. But sure, man, I'll, I'll go for it. I'll headline. I'll, uh, I'll get back in the picture. Just bedded in a good win with Shane. Chief support for the next two anti-Joshua fights. Stepped up in opposition against um, David Brophy. Stepped up again in opposition again against Martin Murray. Now I'm mandatory for world title again. But this time I've got a team who take a lot of the responsibility for me, which is which was vital. Because <laughs> talking about the ticket sales and all of that, that period, that you're one of the first fighters that I can think of that almost seem to understand that you're doing pay-per-view, so you're going to have to drive viewers to the fight. So you've got to manufacture a beef with your opponent or you've got to engage in mind games that are going to get the public interested in a fight they might not have heard of without it. I'm interested in how much thought and preparation you put into these kind of narratives, if you want to call it that, that, that would build a fight and get people interested. And what did that give you? But equally, what did it take away from you? Yeah, no, I mean, I'd, for for a real fight, so the first time this kind of really came around for me, I've boxed uh, James Zagal, who's um, was the Olympic champion. He won won the Olympics in Beijing, two thousand eight. We're club mates. We're both from the same amateur club. Boxers amateurs became fierce rivals since then. Both turned professional around the same time, but obviously he's turning professional with an Olympic gold medal. He's the the golden boy of this generation. Skip forward a couple of years. Um, I've got the Commonwealth title. He's got the British title, and we're going to collide. We, we are, our paths are going to cross because neither of us are going to show weakness in, in going a different route. Um, I get made mandatory for the British championship. So, um, a fight date is set and, um, me and James's build up just took off. We end up headlining this show, but I would always be prepared, Damien, before the, before any encounter with, with James Agal. And I knew James, obviously we'd been from the same club, hadn't spoken a few years, but, uh, I knew his nature. I knew 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 what he was like, and I would make <laughs> I would usually make a sweeping statement type sort of assumption of someone's character, and then decide is there any insecurities in that character, and then just have a little dig and a poke and see where we go with it. Now that stuff always plays through to being good watching, good listening, drives the pay-per-view machine or the, you know, the, the boxing machine. So they want to get you together as, as many times as they possibly can. And I would always try and differentiate myself when I could to stand out. But there and then it's about getting a reaction from your opponent. So this is when the fight starts then? For this me, is, the fight yeah. starts. The pre first press conference, the fight started. So I'd be like, what's he going to wear? Right, he's going to show up in a, in a, he's going to show up in his gym kit because that's what he likes to wear. I was like, right, what am I going to wear? I'm going to wear a, a suit with a Larry tie. Like, Why you can do that? I'm going to look stark contrast to him. Um, the tie, the tie is a bit of a peacock effect. I'm going to stand out. I've got to have to do something to make sure that people are not just listening to what he says. And I've got to be ready with 
what I want to say. I want it to be clear, concise. You're going to get asked a bunch of the same questions from journalists, but I'm going to have to answer these questions a different way each and every time. Otherwise, it's boring for me and they're going to have to, they're going to write the same, same stuff. Any question he's got, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have an answer for. I'm going to be, I might even be obnoxious. I, m I might intercut him and, and, and break into him. If he stutters on something, I'll answer it for him. So now they're under pressure to say something decent because if they don't, <laughs> then I'm ready to snipe in at them. Um, so that, and yeah, I mean, I carried that sort of through, through my career. By well, the time you did the Rubik's Cube. So yeah, Cole Frutch, um, we'd already had the first fight. Yeah. Um, I'd already, I mean, I'd, I'd now he's admitted you've got into his head, haven't they? Cause by the second fight, he's, he's admitting that you'd needled him enough that he had to go and seek support. Yeah. So this is, I think this is before he's admitted that. Right. So the first press conference to announce the rematch were at Wembley Stadium and, yeah, I like Carl can. <laughs> I think sometimes it's nerves, but he can ramble. So, uh, and he's had a long, illustrious career. So at times he will go back to the very start. And I thought, <laughs> if he goes right back to the very start, I'm going to solve a Rubik's Cube sitting next to him at a press conference. Um, so I sat there and uh, I pretended that I just got it out of the packet and learned it, but I didn't uh, and solved it. I learned the algorithms a week before. I was like, oh, I got it down to about two and a half minutes. I thought, I've got two and a half minutes here. The pressure's on. Brilliant. I can't There's not some finish serious it. serious practice gone yeah, on for this, this moment. Great. I always wanted to be a bit different. I always wanted to, I always So that's, uh, maybe, maybe it's part of being a, a high, high performer, high, high performance. I'd be like, right, I need to differentiate myself from everyone else. So um, it's boxing. It's an individual sport. You don't carry fans like you do in football. You know, it's not it's you they'll back an individual so yeah you know I'd, as I say I'd make myself as, as available as possible I'd do as much media as I could and uh, if there was anything alternative or funny or something we'd have a go see but what I love about your about your approach is having sort of been along to these weigh-ins or the or the press conferences with boxers a lot of them it, it's about ramping up the testosterone. Do you know what I mean? Like pretending to put the head in and or being threatening. And yours reminded me of that famous one when Nassim Hamed first boxed Steve Robinson down in Cardiff, and he went over and shook his hand and said, "Thanks for giving me the opportunity to fight for your world title." And then when he replied, he said, uh, "I'm confident I'm going to beat you. So what I'll do is uh, I'll give you the whole of my purse if you beat me. Will you give me all of your purse if I beat you?" And Steve Robinson hesitated. And Hamad went, I've got you. The fact that you couldn't answer me instantly was clever that he got in his head yeah. by being cerebral and a bit smart rather than just being abusive or, you know, like there's nothing particularly clever about that, whereas what you were doing was well thought out and, and precise. Yeah, I always wanted to keep it um, professional. Uh, nothing personal, really. Right. Um, you know, nothing that's actually really personal you know um why was that important because because it's because it's it is it's we're, we are professionals would you mind sharing with us your seven traits of a champion yeah if i could get them off now <laughs> Come on, so uh number one is to keep going why was that important it's the easiest one to start with and sometimes even if it's just a an idea in your brain, like stick with it, keep going, right? Just keep going to start with. Um, usually right at the start is the easiest way to just sort of quit and give up, but you don't. Number two would be to stay focused. How did you do it? It's, it's I suppose, it, whatever your goal is or your dream or your ambition is to f sort of figure it out and just make sure that you don't let other niggling doubts creep in. So staying focused, focused on that goal, you make sure that you get the work done. You know, for, I relate a lot of stuff to boxing, so make sure that, you know, keep the diet in check so the weight don't balloon right up in case I get a call and there's a fight on the horizon. You stay in the gym, you stay active, so um, the body's always ticking over. It might be to take care of the brand because you got to do some some media or some alternative media while you're not in the gym or you're recovering from an injury or, or rehab or something like that. So staying focused on the task at hand is important. Number three, to be willing to make sacrifices. So you've got to make sacrifices. Four, to not waste time, uh, which is hard. <laughs> uh, um, so when you say to not waste time, do you mean to just be permanently focused on the boxing? Everything is 
is boxing? For me, yeah. I mean, um, I had a, a career, a sh- you know, box boxes are a, a short career. It could mm. be over at any point, so just don't waste any time. Um, seize the day, take the opportunities. If the opportunity's there, take it. Don't waste time. Um, next one will be live with clear intentions. Number six is to take responsibility, which was hard. Talk about myself going, climbing 10 feet from Everest and walking around telling everyone I've, I'm a world champion. You're not. Take responsibility. Um, losing a split decision out there with Baddy Jack. Am I blaming the trainer? No, but I'm taking responsibility that I might need something else. I might yeah. need I might need a new setup, a new gym, a new new coach, or something else. So to own own up to your to shortcomings when they come, um, take responsibility. And the last one, number seven, is be willing to start over, be willing to go again. So describe to us then the moment at Wembley with eighty thousand people watching, where you've done everything you can to to generate this post war crowd. You've done you've left no stone unturned, and then you are faced with having to pick yourself up off the canvas and process what must have felt like a crushing defeat at the moment. Because we've all had it, we've all faced moments like that, but yours was done under such a public spotlight. Tell us how you learned to process that and come back. Mm. Yeah, no, that I mean, that was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. Um, and I didn't, I don't even, I don't think I processed it properly at the time. I mean, I think... I was numb from it, like not just the punch, but uh, we come out of Wembley. I had a little flat in West London that was that I'd bought um, a couple of years before, but we planned to come home that night and it was just a really weird, sobering sort of place to be. I wasn't in a good place, obviously. Knew I had to take the loss with humility, but I was seething, like rock bottom, like absolute rock bottom. But I... Uh, we go on holiday, me and the miss, we just book, we just go the next day, we just pack a bag and go. And then once we went, it was in Dubai, literally that day, uh, land and I'm on the phone to Calais Island, like, I'm ready to go. Like, what can we do? So we, I'm already scheming to get back. I'm chasing it. Like I'm absolutely chasing it. But, um, in my brain, I'm like, again, whether I think I still was thinking, world champion without a belt like who next what how, I need to, I'm making up for lost ground got to chase it so just chasing it but it was it was awful it was awful couldn't couldn't enjoy any of it so what advice George would you give to anyone listening to this that maybe is facing their own canvas moment where they're having to learn how to pick themselves up from a setback a failure or a disappointment what what lessons did you learn from it that are applicable what didn't leave me at that point was desire like desire and drive which is vital um what i would have done differently is just took a little bit more time to to breathe to uh, assess and ab- absorb the situation speak speak to the people around you you know like I've, I've never had a therapist or anything but um i've always bounced ideas off the people closest to me and um that serves me really well my wife in particular you know we, we we'll we'll chew the fat on stuff and Usually you'll come to a logical conclusion, and then you trust your gut. You know, you, you, my gut never really failed, would never really fail you. So um, that would probably be my my advice. If you have felt some some shortcomings, I mean, there's always someone out there worse off than you. There's always something to be, and there's there's always something to be to be thankful for, and there's always a lesson to be learned. So just don't lose that desire at that point. Stay switched on. Stay. Um, focused and uh but for me right there i could have done with probably just letting the dust settle a little bit and um see if there's any other changes i needed to make before you know going back to it back back to work but i think i think that's probably the the best i could say for the listeners no thank you thanks for being so candid about what's a difficult moment Mm. appreciate it so we always end with our quick fire questions the first one is what three non-negotiable behaviours do you and the people around you need to buy into? Uh, well, yeah, I'll go back to <laughs> what I've the first two will be uh, belief, like self-belief, confidence, unwavering self-belief. And there will come a time when maybe you'll have to let go of the dream, but until then, give it everything you've, you've finally got. And then 
I think trust your gut if you can. Um, surround yourself with, with the right people, good people, when you can. And then trust your gut on that. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would that be and why? I don't, I mean, I, people ask me, would I change anything? And I don't think I would because I wouldn't roll the dice on a different outcome of not being where I am now. And I, I think I am happy, you know, I'm as happy as, as I want to be. Um, and I'm happy now because of lots of the suffering that I've, that I, you know, that I faced or what felt like suffering. I would love to go back to Wembley Stadium with Roch, not necessarily for for a different outcome, but I was so consumed with the with the performance that I never really took in the the atmosphere. So that 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 was a, that's a real shame, and um, and I was obviously grieving after the loss, so I didn't take in any of the atmosphere after uh, the fight. So that 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 would be uh, where I'd, I'd like to venture back to. What book would you offer up to the members of the High Performance Book Club? I'm not a big reader, to be honest. It's not how I sort of like to consume media. I don't, yeah, it doesn't stick stick with me. But um, I thought about that question on the way in and it's it's not even really a, a, the same sort of media. But what I used to like to do, and I still like to do, is I like to go running in the dark with music. And it's actually pretty good for solving a lot of your problems that might be why way that works back. for you. I just end up in a bit of a trance, like um, flow, flow. Yeah, when, when you're driving or whatnot. But this is even better. So I used to go running around uh, Old Deer Park in Richmond, and you'd end up doing your sweat runs quite late at night. And obviously, when you're when you're sweating and you're dehydrated, you're a little bit more emotional anyway. And it would be pitch black, and I'd have the mu I'd have music in my ears. Safe in the knowledge that if someone attacked me, I could probably outrun them. Uh, <laughs> or, or defend yourself. <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> but um but that was pretty cool. That was pretty that was, yeah. the closest I would get. I mean, yeah. I'd work out a lot of a lot of a lot of problems that way. And the final question is really your last message to the listeners of this podcast. What is your one golden rule for living a high performance life? Yeah, I think um if you want to perform to the best of your ability, like I said in the opening show, be in in the arena, slipping and sliding, making the punches, miss and firing back, living the moment, be happy and be present with the belief that uh, you're there to conquer the world. Top man. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Damien. Jake. What I thought was really interesting there was the desire to lead from the front. I mean, he said a lot of times, you know, I led from the front. It was me. I was front and center. The need to take that on himself. I just wonder whether in hindsight, if he'd have got the perfect people around him earlier on and taken on less himself, delegated more to others, maybe that world title would have come earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we talk about entourages especially when we think about it in terms of boxing or young athletes as a negative influence the idea of being surrounded by uh, people that are just telling you what you want to hear and blowing smoke up your backside but actually a good entourage is essential people that take the pressure off you do skills that you're not capable of and allow you to focus and it's just as important for a fighter as much as the skills that you're acquiring in the ring so yeah, i think it's important for anyone listening to this to ask themselves, have I got the right entourage around me mm. to allow me to go and focus and perform? And also, you know, don't feel that you have to do it yourself. You know, life's a team sport. I, I, I think there are very few things in life that we do better on our own than with a group of people. Yeah, and and that's almost like the irony of something like boxing. Like there's so many paradoxes. It's known as chess with gloves on. So you've got to be cerebral, but equally it's a physical game. And it's almost like the ultimate individual sport and yet it is a team game with the people that are in your dressing room and that's a powerful lesson for anybody in any pursuit yeah it, life is a team sport and also remember this is a guy who had the trauma of really badly damaging an opponent then had the three world title fights finally conquered the world and only felt relief you know i can't remind people often enough how important it is to not think that there is this amazing moment of hallelujah at the end of life. It is only the doing that gives you the joy. Yeah, I think we hear it so often and I don't think it can be repeated frequently enough, this idea of you've got to enjoy the journey. Like George said, even if he had that chance to go back, he'd go back to that night of his most crushing loss 
just so he could at least enjoy the experience. And I think all too often we're focused on where we want to get to rather than how we're going to get there. Thanks, mate. Loved it. Thank you, mate. Well, look, thank you so much to George for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing his thoughts with us. And as always, a big thanks goes to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from these conversations. Send them to a friend, pop them in a WhatsApp group, um, stick them on LinkedIn, share them in a work conversation or a work setting. But please just remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. By the way, I just want to say, uh, George has his own podcast as well called the George Groves Boxing Club. And like all of the best podcasts, so much of the conversation he has isn't actually about boxing. It's about life and mindset and resilience and understanding and empathy. So uh, feel free to check out George's podcast, George Groves Boxing Club. You won't regret it. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.